Section 2 of His Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. Chapter 4 He breakfasted with Deborah late on Sunday morning. He had come down at the usual hour, despite his long tramp of the previous night, for he wanted to tell her the news and talk it all out before Laura came down. Because Deborah, he hadn't a doubt, with her woman's curiosity, had probed deep into Laura's affairs in the many long talks they had had in her room. He had often heard them there, and so, as he waited and waited, and still his daughter did not come, Roger grew distinctly annoyed and when at last she did appear, his greeting was perfunctory. What kept you out so late last night? Oh, I was having a very good time, said Deborah contentedly. She poured herself some coffee. I always wanted, she went on, to see Laura really puzzled, downright flabbergasted, and I saw her just like that last night. Roger looked up with a jerk of his head. You and Laura together last night? exactly on the astra roof at her father's glare of astonishment a look of quiet relish came over her mobile features her wide lips twitched a little well why not she asked him i'm quite a dancer down at school and last night with alan baird we were dining together you know he proposed we go somewhere and dance he's a perfectly awful dancer and so i held out as long as i could but he insisted and i gave in though I much prefer the theatre. Well, breathed Roger softly. So you hoof it with the rest. His expression was startled and intent. Would he ever get to know these girls? Well, he added with a sigh, I suppose you know what you're about. Oh, no, I don't, she answered. I never know what I'm about. If you always do, you miss so much. You get into a solemn habit of trying nothing till you're sure. But to return to Laura, as we came gaily down the room, we ran right into her, you see. That's how Alan dances. And when we collided, I smiled at her sweetly and said, Why, hello, dearie. You here, too? And Deborah sipped her coffee. I have never believed that the lower jaw of a well-bred girl could actually drop open. But Laura's did. With a good strong light, Alan told me, he could have examined her tonsils for her. Rather a disgusting thought. You see, until she saw me there, poor Laura had me so thoroughly placed, my school-marm job, my tastes and habits, everything, all cut and dried. She has never once come to my school, and in every talk we've ever had, there has always been some perfectly good and absorbing reason why we should talk about Laura alone. There is now, said her father. He was in no mood for tomfoolery. His daughter saw it and smiled a little. What is it? she inquired. And then he let her have it. Laura wants to get married, he snapped. Deborah caught her breath at that, and an eager, excited expression swept over her attractive face. She had leaned forward suddenly. Father, no, which one? she asked. Tell me, is it Harold Sloan? It is. Oh, Dad. She sank back in her chair. Oh, Dad, she repeated. What's the matter with Sloane? he demanded. Oh, nothing, nothing. It's all right. It is, eh? How do you know it is? 
His anxious eyes were still upon hers, and he saw she was thinking fast and hard and shutting him completely out, and it irritated him. "'What do you know of this fellow Sloane?' "'Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Huh! "'Then why do you sit there and say it's all right? "'Don't talk like a fool,' he exclaimed. He waited, but she said no more, and Roger's exasperation increased. "'He has money enough, apparently, and they'll spend it like March hares.' Deborah looked up at him. "'What did Laura tell you, dear?' "'Not very much. I'm only her father. She had a dinner and dance on her mind.' But Deborah pressed her questions, and he gave her brief replies. "'Well, what shall we do about it?' he asked. "'Nothing, until we know something more.' Roger regarded her fiercely. "'Why don't you go up and talk to her, then? She's asleep yet. Never mind if she is. If she's going to marry a chap like that and ruin her life, it's high time she was up for her breakfast.' While he scanned his Sunday paper, he heard Deborah in the pantry. She emerged with a breakfast tray, and he saw her start up to Laura's room. She was there for over an hour. And when she returned to his study, he saw her eyes were shining. How women's eyes will shine at such times, he told himself in annoyance. Well, he demanded. Better leave her alone today, she advised. Harold is coming some night soon. What for? To have a talk with you. Her father smote his paper. What did she tell you about him? he asked. Not much more than she told you. His parents are dead, but he has a rich widowed aunt in Bridgeport who adores him. They mean to be married at the end of May. She wants a church wedding, bridesmaids, ushers, the wedding reception here, of course. Oh, Lord, breathed Roger dismally. We won't bother you much, father dear. You will bother me much, he retorted. I propose to be bothered. Bothered a lot. I'm going to look up this fellow Sloane. But let's leave him alone for today. She bent over her father compassionately. What a night you must have had, poor dear. Roger looked up in grim reproach. You like all this, he grunted. You, a grown woman, a teacher, too. I wonder if I do, she said. I guess I'm a queer person, Dad, a curious family mixture of Laura and Edith and mother and you, with a good deal of myself thrown in. But it feels rather good to be mixed, don't you think? Let's stay mixed as long as we can, and keep together the family. That afternoon, to distract him, Deborah took her father to a concert in Carnegie Hall. She had often urged him to go of late, but despite his liking for music, Roger had refused before, simply because it was a change. But why balk at going anywhere now, when Laura was up to such antics at home? "'Do you mind climbing up to the gallery?' Deborah asked as they entered the hall. "'Not at all,' he curtly answered. He did mind it very much. "'Then we'll go to the very top,' she said. "'It's a long climb, but I want you to see it. It's so different up there.' "'I don't doubt it,' he replied. And as they made the slow ascent, pettishly he wondered why Deborah must always be so eager for queer places, galleries, zoo schools, tenement slums. Why not take a two-dollar seat in life? Deborah seated him far down in front of the great gallery, over at the extreme right, and from here they could look back and up at a huge dim arena of faces. Now watch them close, she whispered. See what the music does to them. 
as the symphony began below the faces all grew motionless and as the music cast its spell the anxious ruffled feelings which had been with roger all that day little by little were dispelled and soon his imagination began to work upon this scene he saw many familiar american types he felt he knew what they had been doing on sundays only a few years before after church they had eaten large sunday dinners then some had napped and some had walked and some had gone to sunday school at night they had had cold suppers and afterwards some had gone back to church while others as in roger's house in the days when judith was alive had gathered around the piano for hymns young men callers friends of their daughters had joined in the family singing yes some of these people had been like that to them a few short years ago a concert on the sabbath would have seemed a sacrilege he could almost hear from somewhere the echo of abide with me but over this memory of a song rose now the surging music of tchaikovsky's pathetique and the yearnings and fierce hungers in this tumultuous music swept all the hymns from roger's mind once more he watched the gallery and this time he became aware that more than half were foreigners out of the mass from every side individual faces emerged swarthy weird and staring hungrily into space and to roger the whole shadowy place the very air grew pregnant charged with all these inner lives bound together in this mood this mystery that had swept over them all immense and formless baffling this furious demanding and this blind wistful groping which he himself had known so well ever since his wife had died and he had lost his faith in god what was the meaning of it all if life were nothing but a start and there were nothing but the grave you will live on in your children's lives he glanced around at deborah was she so certain so serene what do you know of her he asked little or nothing he sadly replied and he tried to piece together from things she had told him her life as it had passed him by had there been no questionings no sharp disillusionments there must have been he recalled irritabilities small acts and exclamations of impatience boredom blues and as he watched her he grew sure that his daughter's existence had been like his own despite its different setting its other aims and visions it had been a mere beginning a feeling for a foothold a search for light and happiness and deborah seemed to him still a child how far will you go he wondered although he was still watching her even after the music had ceased she did not notice him for a time then she turned to him slowly with a smile well what did you see she asked i wasn't looking he replied why dearie she retorted where is that imagination of yours it was with you he answered tell me what you were thinking and still under the spell of the music deborah said to her father i was thinking of hungry people millions of em now this minute not only here but in so many places concerts movies libraries hungry oh for everything life its beauty all it means and i was thinking this is youth no matter how old they happen to be and that to feed it we have schools 
I was thinking how little we've done as yet, and of all that we're sure to do in the many, many years ahead. Do you see what I mean? She squeezed his hand. Welcome back to school, she said, back into the hungry army of youth. Shh! Again the music had begun, and sitting by her side he wondered whether it was because she knew that Laura's affair had made him feel old that Deborah had brought him here. They went to Edith's for supper. The Cunningham's apartment was on the west side, well uptown. It was not the neighborhood which Edith would have chosen, for nearly all the nice people she knew lived east of the park. But rents were somewhat lower here, and there was at least an abundance of fresh air for her family. Edith had found that her days were full of these perplexing decisions. It was all very simple to resolve that her children be old-fashioned, normal, wholesome, nice. But then she looked into the city, into schools and kindergartens, clothes and friends, and children's parties, books and plays. And through them all, to her dismay, she felt conflicting currents, clashes between old and new. She felt New York, and anxiously she asked herself, what is old-fashioned? What is normal? What is wholesome? What is nice? Cautiously she made her way, testing and comparing, trying small experiments. Often sharply she would draw in her horns. She had struck something common, and she knew all this was nothing compared to the puzzles that lay ahead. For from her friend Marge Deering, whose girls were well along in their teens, she heard of deeper problems. The girls were so inquisitive. Dauntlessly, Madge was facing each month the most disturbing questions. Thank heaven Edith had only one daughter. Sons were not quite so baffling. And so she had groped her way along. When her father and Deborah arrived, placidly she asked them what they had been doing. And when she heard that they had been at a concert on the Sabbath, though this was far from old-fashioned and something she would not have done herself, it did not bother her half so much as the fact that Hannah, the Irish nurse, had slapped little Tad that afternoon. She had never known Hannah to do it before. Could it be that the girl was tired or sick? Perhaps she needed a few days off. I must have a talk with her, Edith thought, as soon as father and Deborah go. Roger always liked to come here. Say what you would about Edith's habit of keeping too closely to her home. The children to whom she had devoted herself were a fine, clean, happy lot. Here were new lives in his family, glorious fresh beginnings. He sat on the floor with her three boys, watching the patient efforts of George to harness his perturbed white rat to Tad's small fire-engine. George was a lank, sprawling lad of fourteen, all legs and arms and elbows, with rumpled hair and freckled face, a quick bright smile and nice brown eyes, frank, simple, understandable eyes. All but one of Edith's children were boys, and boys were a blessed relief to a man who had three grown-up daughters. And while Roger watched them, with a gentle glow of anticipation, he waited for what should follow when, as had been already arranged, Deborah should break to her sister the news of Laura's engagement. 
And he was not disappointed. The change in Edith was something tremendous. Until now, so quietly self-absorbed, at the news that Laura was to be married instantly, she was all alert. Sitting there in the midst of her children and facing a time of agony only a few weeks ahead, which would add one more to her family. Edith's pretty florid face grew flushed and radiant as she exclaimed, What a perfectly wonderful thing for Laura! Now, if only she can have a child! Her questions followed thick and fast, and with them her thoughts of what should be done. Bruce must look up this suitor at once. Bruce demurred stoutly but without avail. She eagerly questioned her sister as to Laura's plans for the wedding, but plainly she considered that Deborah was no woman to give her the full information she wanted. She must see Laura herself at once, for though she had thoroughly disapproved of the gay helter-skelter existence of her younger sister, still Laura was now to be married, and this made all the difference. Just before Roger and Deborah left, Edith drew her father aside, and with a curious concern and pity in her voice, she said, I am so sorry I shan't be able to help you with the wedding, dear, and make it the sweet old-fashioned kind that mother would have wanted. Of course there's Deborah. She'll be there. But her head is so full of new ideas. I'm afraid she may find the house rather a burden after Laura has gone away. Edith gave a worried little sigh. I'll be so glad, she added, when we get that place in Morristown. We'll want you out there often, and for good long visits, too. You may even find you'll care to try staying there with us for a while. Roger scowled and thanked her. She had given him a shock of alarm. So she thinks that Deborah will find the housekeeping too hard, he reflected anxiously. And as he walked home with his daughter, he kept glancing at her face, which, for all its look of quiet, had so much tensity beneath. She had packed her life so full of school. What if she wanted to give up their home? She'll try, of course, she'll try her best, but she'll find it too much of an added strain. And again he felt that sickening dread. Deborah said nothing. He felt as though they had drifted apart and at night in his bed as Roger stared up at the beetling cliff of apartment windows just outside. Drearily he asked himself how it would feel to live like that. CHAPTER Five. One afternoon a few days later Roger was riding in the park. He rode William, a large lazy cob who as he advanced in age had so subtly and insidiously slackened his pace from a trot to a jog that Roger barely noticed how slowly he was riding. As he rode along he liked to watch the broad winding bridle-path with its bobbing procession of riders that kept appearing before him under the tall spreading trees. Though he knew scarcely anyone by name, he was a familiar figure here, and he recognized scores of faces. To many men he nodded at passing, and to not a few alluring young dames, ardent creatures with bright eyes who gave him smiles of greeting, Roger gravely raised his hat. One was the Silver Lady, in a Broadway musical show, but he thought she was one of the Newport crowd. He liked to make shrewd guesses like that. There were so many kinds of people here. 
there were stout anxious ladies riding for figures and lean morose gentlemen riding for health there were joyous carefree girls chatting and laughing merrily there were some gallant foreigners and there were riding masters and roger could not tell them apart there were mad boys from the squadron who rode at a furious canter and there were groups of children eager and flushed excited and gay with stolid grooms behind them the path in several places ran close beside the main road of the park and with the coming of the dusk this road took on deep purple hues and glistened with reflections from countless yellow motor eyes and from the polished limousines sumptuous young women smiled out upon the riders at least so roger saw his life and after those bleak lonely years confronted by eternity it was good to come here and forget to feel himself for the moment a part of the thoughtless gaiety the ease and luxury of the town here he was just on the edge of it all often as a couple passed he would wonder what they were doing that night in the riding school where he kept his horse it was a lazy pleasure to have the english valet there pull off his boots and breeches though if anyone had told him so roger would have denied it with indignation and surprise for was he not an american it had been a wonderful tonic a great idea of laura's this forcing him up here to ride in one of her affectionate moods just after a sick spell he had been through his gay capricious daughter had insisted that he have his horse brought down from the mountains she had promised to ride with him herself and she had done so for a week since then he had often met her here with one of her many smart young men what a smile of greeting would flash on her face when laura happened to notice him he was thinking of laura now and there was an anxious gleam in his eyes for young sloane was coming to dinner tonight what was he going to say to the fellow bruce had learned that sloane played polo owned and drove a racing car and was well liked in his several clubs but what about women and his past edith had urged her father to go through the lad's life with a fine tooth comb and if he should find anything there to kick up no end of a row for the honor of the family all of which was nothing but words reflected roger pettishly it all came to this that he had a most ticklish evening ahead on the path as a rider greeted him his reply was a dismal frown laura's suitor arrived at six o'clock in his study roger heard the bell listened a moment with beating heart then raised himself heavily from his chair and went into the hallway ah yes it's you he exclaimed with a nervous cordiality come in my boy come right in here let me help you with your coat i don't know just where laura is <clears throat> he violently cleared his throat suppose while we're away we have a smoke he kept it up back into his den there the suitor refused a cigar and carefully lit a cigarette roger noticed again how young the chap was and marriage seemed so ridiculous all this feverish trouble was for something so unreal well sir the candidate blurted forth i guess i'd better come right to the point mr gale i want to marry your daughter laura yes roger cursed himself 
Why had he asked Laura? Of course it was Laura. Would this cub be wanting Deborah? Well, my boy, he said quickly, I, I wish I knew you better. So do I, sir. Suppose we begin. The youth took a quick pull at his cigarette. He waited, stirred nervously in his seat. You'll have some questions to ask, I suppose. Yes, there are questions. Roger had risen mechanically and was slowly walking the room. He threw out short, gruff phrases. I'm not interested in your past. I don't care about digging into a man. I never have and I never will. Except as it might affect my daughter. That's the main question, I suppose. Can you make her happy? I think so, said Sloane, decidedly. Roger gave him a glance of displeasure. That's a large order, young man, he rejoined. Then let's take it in sections, the youngster replied. Confound his boyish assurance. To begin with, he was saying, I rather think I have money enough. We'd better go into that, hadn't we? Yes, said Roger indifferently. We might as well go into it. Of course, the chap had money enough. He was a money-maker. You could hear it in his voice. You could see it in his jaw, in his small, aggressive, blonde moustache. Now he was telling briefly of his rich aunt in Bridgeport, of the generous start she had given him, his work downtown, his income. Twenty-two thousand this year, he said. We can live on that all right, I guess. You won't starve, was the dry response. Roger walked for a moment in silence, then turned abruptly on young Sloane. "'Look here, young man, I don't want to dig,' he continued very huskily, "'but I know little or nothing of what may be behind you. I don't care to ask you about it now, unless it can make trouble. It can't make trouble.' At that answer, low but sharp, Roger wheeled and shot a glance into those clear and twinkling eyes, and his own eyes gleamed with pain. Laura had been such a little thing in the days when she had been his pet, the days when he had known her well. What could he do about it? This was only the usual thing. But he felt suddenly sick of life. How soon do you want to get married? he demanded harshly. Next month, if we can. Where are you going? Abroad, said Sloane. Roger caught at this topic as at a straw. Soon they were talking of the trip, and the tension slackened rapidly. He had never been abroad himself, but had always dreamed of going there. With maps and books of travel, Judith and he had planned it out. In imagination they had lived in London and Paris, Munich and Rome, always in queer old lodgings, looking on quaint crooked streets. He had dreamed of long delicious rambles, glimpses into queer old shops, vast silent dark cathedrals. For Laura how different it would be. This boy of hers knew Europe as a group of gorgeous new hotels. The moment Laura joined them her father's eye was caught and held by the ring upon her finger. Roger knew rings, they were his hobby and this huge yellow solitaire in its new and brilliant setting at once awakened his dislike. It just fitted a life they were to lead. What life? As he listened to his daughter he kept wondering if she were so sure. Had she felt no uneasiness? She must have, he decided, for all her gay excitement. One Laura in that smiling face, another Laura deep inside 
doubting and uncertain, reaching for her happiness, now elated, now dismayed, exclaiming, Now at last I'm starting. Oh, what an ignorant child she was. He wanted to cry out to her, You'll always be just starting. You'll never be sure. You'll never be happy. You'll always be just beginning to be. And the happier you are, the more you will feel it is only a start. And then more and more his spirit withdrew from these two heedless children later on when deborah came he barely noticed her meeting with sloane and through dinner while they talked of plans for the wedding the trip abroad still roger took no part at all he felt dull and heavy deborah too he noticed after her first efforts to be welcoming and friendly had gradually grown silent he saw her watching Laura with a mingled look of affection and of whimsical dismay. Soon after dinner she left them, and Roger smoked with the boy for a while and learned that he was twenty-nine. Both had grown uneasy and rather dull with each other. It was a relief when again Laura joined them, dressed to go out. She and her lover left the house. Roger sat motionless for some time. His cigar grew cold, unheeded. One of the sorrows of his life had been that his only son had died. Bruce had been almost like a son, but this young man of Laura's? No. Later he went for his evening walk, and as though drawn by invisible chains, he strayed far down into the ghetto. Soon he was elbowing his way through a maze of uproarious tenement streets as one who had been there many times. But he noticed little around him. He went on, as he had always gone, seeing and hearing this seething life only as a background to his own adventure. He reached his destination. Pushing his way through a swarm of urchins playing in front of a pawn-shop, he entered and was a long time inside. And when he came out again, at last, the whole expression of his face had undergone a striking change. As one who had found the solace he needed for the moment, his pace unconsciously quickened, and he looked about him with brighter eyes. Around the corner from his home he went into a small jewelry shop, a remnant of the town of the past. There were no customers in the place, and the old Galician jeweler sat at the back playing solitaire. At sight of Roger he arose, and presently in a small back room, beneath the glare of a powerful lamp, the two were studying the ring which Roger had found in the ghetto that night. It was plain, just a thin, worn band of gold with an emerald by no means large. But the setting was old and curious and personal, distinctive. Somebody over in Europe had worked on it long and lovingly. Now, as the Galician gently rubbed and polished and turned the ring this way and that, the light revealed crude, tiny figures, a man and a woman under a tree. And was that a vine or a serpent? They studied it long and absorbedly. At home, up in his bedroom, Roger opened a safe which stood in one corner, took out a small shallow tray, and sat down with it by his lamp. A strange array of rings was there, small and delicate, huge, bizarre. Great signet rings and poison rings, love tokens, charms and amulets, 
rings which had been worn by wives by mistresses by favorite slaves and by young girls in convents rings with the madonna and rings with many other saints graven on large heavy stones rings french and russian polish italian spanish syrian some were many centuries old in nine shallow metal trays they filled the safe in roger's room although its money value was small the gale collection was well known to a scattered public of connoisseurs and roger took pride in showing it but what had always appealed to him most was the romance the mystery stored up in these old talismans that had lived so many ages traveled through so many lands decked so many fingers roger had found every one of them in the pawn-shops of new york what new recruits to america had brought them here and pawned them from what old cities had they come what passions of love and jealousy of hatred faith devotion were in this glittering array roger's own love affair had been deep but quiet and even and happy all the wild adventures the might-have-beens in his sex life were gathered into these dusky trays with their richly colored glints of light of his daughters laura had been the one most interested in his rings and so he thought of laura now as he placed in the tray the new ring he had bought the one he would have liked for her but a vague uneasiness filled his mind for he knew she had the same craving as he for what gleamed out of these somber trays the old galician jeweler had long been quite a friend of hers she had often dropped in at his shop to ask him curious questions about his women patrons and it was just this side of him that roger did not care for so many of those women were from a dubious glittering world and the old galician took a weird vicarious joy in many of the gay careers into which he sent his beloved rings his brooches earrings necklaces his clasps and diamond garters and laura loved to make him talk yes she was her father's child a part of himself he too had had his yearnings his burning curiosities his youthful ventures into the town you will live on in our children's lives with her inheritance what would she do would she stop half-way as he had done or would she throw all caution aside and let the flames within her rise he heard a step in the doorway and deborah stood there smiling a new one she inquired he nodded and she bent over the tray poor father deborah murmured I saw you eyeing Laura's engagement ring at dinner tonight. It wasn't like this one, was it? He scowled. I don't like what I see ahead of her, nor do you, he said. Be honest. She looked at him perplexedly. We can't stop it, can we? And even if we could, she said, I'm not quite sure I'd want to. It's her love affair, not yours or mine, grown out of a life she made for herself curious eager thrilled by it all and in the center of her soul the deep glad growing certainty i'm going to be a beautiful woman i myself i laura gale oh you don't know nor do i and so she felt her way along eagerly hungrily making mistakes and you and i left her to do it alone i'm afraid we both rather neglected her dad deborah ended sadly and all we can do now, I think, is to give her the kind of wedding she wants. 
Roger started to speak, but hesitated. What is it? she inquired. Queer, he answered gruffly, how a man can neglect his children, as I have done, as I do still, when the one thing he wants most in life is to see each one of them happy. CHAPTER Six. Roger soon grew accustomed to seeing young Sloane about the house. They could talk together more easily, and he began to call him Harold. Harold asked him with Laura to lunch at the Ritz to meet the aunt from Bridgeport, a lady excessively stout and profound. But that ended the formalities. It had all been so much easier than Roger had expected. So, in its calm, sober fashion, the old house took into its life this new member, these new plans, and the old seemed stronger for the new. For Laura and Edith and Deborah drew together closer than they had been in many years, but only because they felt themselves on the eve of a still deeper and more lasting separation, as the family of Roger Gale divided and went different ways. At times he noticed it sadly. Laura, who had scarcely ever been home for dinner, now spent many evenings here. She needed her home for her wedding, he thought. Each daughter needed it now and then, but as the years wore slowly on, the seasons when they needed it grew steadily wider and wider apart. Early in May, when Roger came home from his office one night, he found Edith's children in the house. From the hallway he could hear their gay, excited voices, and going into the dining-room he found them at their supper. Deborah was with them, and at once her father noticed how much younger she appeared, as she always did with these children, who all idolized her so. She rose and followed him into the hall, and her quiet voice had a note of compassion. "'Edith's baby is coming,' she said. "'Good Lord, is anything wrong?' he asked. "'No, no, it's all right.' but I thought the child wasn't due for three weeks. I know, and poor Edith is fearfully worried. It has upset all her plans. I'd go up and see her if I were you. Your supper is ready, and if you like, you can have it with the children. There followed a happy, boisterous meal, with much expectant chatter about the long summer so soon to begin at the farm up in the mountains. George, whose hair was down over his eyes, rumpled it back absorbedly as he told of a letter he had received from his friend Dave Royce, Roger's farmer, with whom George corresponded. One of the cows was to have a calf, and George was anxious to get there in time. "'I've never seen a real new calf, new absolutely,' he exclaimed, "'and I want to look at this one the very minute that he's born. Gee, I hope we can get there in time.' "'Gee, so do I,' cried Bobby, aged nine, and then Tad, the chubby three-year-old, who had been intently watching his brothers, slowly took the spoon from his mouth, and in his grave, sweet baby voice said very softly, "'Gee!' At her end of the table, Elizabeth, blonde and short and rather plump, frowned and colored slightly, for she was eleven, and she knew there was something dark and shameful about the way calves appear in barns, and so with a quick conscious cough she sweetly interrupted. Oh, Aunt Deborah, won't you please tell us about, 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 jeered the ironical George, about what, you little ninny? Poor Elizabeth blushed desperately. She was neither quick nor resourceful. Now, George, said his aunt warningly, 
"'Wasn't I talking?' the boy rejoined. "'And didn't Betsy butt right in, without even a thing to butt in about? "'About, about,' he jeered again. "'About Paris,' cried his sister, successful at last in her frantic search for a proper topic of conversation. "'And Deborah's trip to Paris.' "'How many times has she told it already?' her brother replied with withering scorn. "'And anyhow, I was talking of cows.' "'Very well,' said his aunt. "'We'll talk about cows. Some cows I saw on a lovely old farm in a little village over in France.' "'There,' cried his young sister. "'Did she ever tell of that part of her trip?' And she made a little face at her brother. "'I don't care,' he answered doggedly. "'She has told about Paris lots of times, and that was what you wanted.' "'Yes, you did. You said about Paris, didn't she, Bob?' "'You bet you did,' young Bob agreed. "'Now, children, children, what does it matter?' "'All right, go ahead with your barn in France,' said George, with patient tolerance. "'Did they have any Holsteins?' Soon the questions were popping from every side, while little Tad beamed from one to the other. To Tad it was all so wonderful, to be having supper away from home, to be here, to go to bed upstairs, take part, perhaps, in a pillow-fight, and glancing at the glowing face and the parted lips of his small grandson, Roger felt a current of warm new life pour into his soul. Early in the evening he went up to Edith's apartment. He found his daughter in a room, looking flushed and very tense. He took her arm, and they walked for a time. A trained nurse was soaping the windows. Roger asked the reason for this, and was told that in case the baby did not come till morning, the doctor wanted to pull up the shades in order to work by daylight. And neighbors in New York are such cats. You've no idea, said Edith. She looked out of the numberless windows crowding close about her home, and she fairly bristled with scorn. Oh, how I loathe apartments. They seem to have come to stay, my dear. In a few years more New York will be a city without a house, he said, only a palace here and there. The thought flashed in his mind. But I shall be gone. Then we'll move out to the country, she cried. Still walking the floor with her father, she talked of the perplexities which, in her feverish state of mind, had loomed suddenly enormous. She had planned everything so nicely for the baby to come the first of June, but now her plans were all upset. She did not want the children here. It would make too much confusion. They had much better go up to the mountains, even though George and Elizabeth lost their last few weeks of school. But who could she find to take them? Bruce was simply rushed to death with his new receivership. Laura was getting her trousseau. Deborah, said Edith, had time for nothing on earth but school. Suppose I take them, Roger ventured. But she only smiled at this. My dear, he urged, your nurse will be with me, and when we arrive there's the farmer's wife. But Edith impatiently shook her head. Her warm, bright eyes seemed to picture it all, hour by hour, day and night, her children there without her. You poor dear, she told him, you haven't the slightest idea what it means. The summer train is not on yet, and you have to change three times on the way, with all the children luggage too and there are their naps and all their meals you don't arrive till late at night no she decided firmly bruce will simply have to go she drew a breath of discomfort you go and talk to him she said i will my dear 
Roger looked at his daughter in deep concern. Awkwardly, his heavy hand touched her small, plump shoulder, and he felt the constant quivering there. Now, now, he muttered uneasily, it's going to be all right, you know. And at that she gave him a rapid glance out of those warm, hunted eyes, as though to ask, what do you know of this? And Roger flinched and turned to the door. Bruce was working at his desk with an old briar pipe in his teeth. He looked up with a quick, nervous smile, which showed his dread of the coming ordeal, but his voice had a carefully casual tone. "'Does she want me now?' he asked. "'No,' said Roger, and he told of her plan for the children. "'I volunteered myself,' he added, but she wouldn't hear to it. "'Oh, my God, man, you wouldn't do,' said Bruce, in droll disparagement. "'You with forty-nine bottles of pasteurized milk? "'Suppose you smashed one. Where'd you be?' Moving our family isn't a job, it's a science, and I've got my degree. He rose, and his face softened. Poor girl, she mustn't worry like that. I'll run in and tell her I'll do it myself, just to get it off her mind. He went to his wife, and when he came back his dark features appeared a little more drawn. Poor devil, thought Roger, he's scared to death, just as I used to be myself. Pretty tough on a woman, isn't it? Bruce muttered, smiling constrainedly. Did Baird say everything's going well? Baird was Edith's physician. Yes, he was here this afternoon, and he said he'd be back this evening. Bruce stopped with a queer little scowl of suspense. I told her I'd see to the trip with the kiddies, and it seemed to relieve her a lot. His eyes went to a pile of documents that lay on the desk before him. It'll play the very devil with the business, taking three days off just now, but I guess I can manage it somehow. A muscle began to twitch on his face. He relit his pipe with elaborate care and looked over at Roger confidingly. Do you know what's the matter with kids these days? It's the twentieth century, he said. It's a disease. It starts in their teeth. No modern girl can get married unless she has had her teeth straightened for years. Our dentist's bill, this year alone, was over $800. But that isn't all. It gets into their young intestines, God bless them, and makes you pasteurize all they eat. It gets into their nerves and tears them up, and your only chance to save them is school. Not a common school, but a simple school. Tuition, $400 a year. And you hire a dancing teacher besides. I mean a rhythm teacher and let em shake it out of their feet. And after that you buy em clothes, not fluffy clothes, but simple clothes, the kind which always costs the most. And then you build a simple home, in a simple place, like Morristown. The whole idea is simplicity. If you can't make enough to buy it, you're lost. If you can make enough, just barely enough, you get so excited you lose your head and do what I did Monday. The two men smiled at each other. Roger was very fond of Bruce. What did you do Monday? he asked. I bought that car I told you about. Splendid! Best thing in the world for you. Tell me all about it. And while Bruce rapidly grew engrossed in telling of the car's fine points, Roger pictured his son-in-law upon hot summer evenings, for Bruce spent his summers in town, forgetting his business for a time and speeding out into the country. Then he thought of Edith and the tyranny of her motherhood, 
always draining her husband's purse and keeping edith so wrapped up in her children and their daily needs that she had lost all interest in anything outside her home what was there wrong about it he knew that edith prided herself on being like her mother but judith had always found time for her friends he himself had been more as edith was now how quickly after judith died he had dropped all friends all interests that's it he ruefully told himself edith takes after her father and the same curious feeling which he had had with laura came back to him with her sister this daughter too was a part of himself his deep instinctive craving to keep to himself in his family was living on in edith was already dominating her home what a queer mysterious business it was this tie between a man and his child he was thinking of this when baird arrived alan baird was not only the doctor who had brought edith's children into the world he was besides an intimate friend he had been bruce's roommate at college as he came strolling into the room with his easy greeting of well folks his low gruff voice his muscular frame over six feet two and the kindly calm assurance in his lean strong visage gave to bruce and roger the feeling of safety they needed for this kind of work was his life he had specialized on women and after over fifteen years of toilsome uphill labor he had become at thirty-seven one of the big gynecologists he was taking his success with the quiet relish of a man who had had to work for it hard and yet he had not been spoiled by success he worked even harder than before so hard in fact that deborah with whom through bruce and edith he had long ago struck up an easy bantering friendship had sturdily set herself the task of prying open his eyes a bit she had taken him to her school at night and to queer little foreign cafes and baird with a humor of his own had retaliated by dragging her to the astor roof and to musical plays if my eyes are to be opened he had doggedly declared i propose to have some diamonds in the scenery and a little cheery ragtime too you've got a good heart deborah gale but your head is full of tenements tonight to divert bruce's thoughts from his wife baird started him talking of his work in six weeks bruce had crammed his mind with the details of skyscraper building and his talk was bewildering now bristling with technical terms permeated through and through with the feeling of strain and fierce competition as roger listened he had again that sharp and oppressive sensation of a savage modern town unrelentingly pressing pressing in restlessly he glanced at baird who sat listening quietly and roger thought of the likeness between their two professions for bruce too was a surgeon his patients were the husbands in their distracting offices baird's were the wives and mothers in their equally distracting homes which were more tense the husbands or the wives and good lord what was it all about this feverish strain of getting and spending what were they spending their very life's blood and what were they getting happiness what did most of them know of real happiness how little they knew how blind they were and yet how they laughed and chattered along how engrossed in their little games what children oh what children 
And am I any better than the rest? Do I know what I'm after, what I'm about? He left them soon, for he felt very tired. He went to his daughter to say good-night, and in her room the talk he had heard became to him suddenly remote, that restless world of small account, for in Edith, in the one brief hour since her father had seen her last, there had come a great transformation into her face an eager light. She was slipping down into a weird, small world which for a brief but fearful season was to be utterly her own, with agony and bloody sweat and joy in a deep mystery. Clumsily he took her hand, it was moist, and he felt it clutch his own. He heard her breathing rapidly. Good-night, he said in a husky tone. I'll be so glad, my dear, so glad. For answer she gave him a hurried smile, a glance from her bright restless eyes. Then he went heavily from the room. At home he found Deborah sitting alone with a pile of school papers in her lap. As he entered she slowly turned her head. How is Edith? she asked him. Roger told of his visit uptown and spoke of Edith's anxiety over getting the children up to the farm. I'll take them myself, said Deborah. But how can you get away from school? Oh, I think I can manage it. We'll leave on Friday morning, and I can be back by Sunday night, Deborah answered. It'll be a great relief to her, said Roger, lighting a cigar. Deborah resumed her work, and there was silence for a time. I let George sit up with me till an hour after his bedtime, she told her father presently. We started talking about white rats. You see, it's still white rats with George. And that started us wondering about God. George wonders if God really knows about rats. Has he ever stuck his face right down and had a good close look at one? Has God ever watched a rat stand up and brush his whiskers with both paws? Has he ever really laughed at rats? And that's another thing, Aunt Deborah. Does God ever laugh at all? Does he know how to take a joke? If he don't, he might as well quit right now. Roger laughed with relish, and his daughter smiled at him. Then the talk turned from rats and God to a big dam out in the Rockies. George had been reading about it, he's thinking of being an engineer, and there was so much he wanted to know that he was soon upon the verge of discovering my ignorance, when all of a sudden a dreamy look, oh, a very dreamy look, came into his eyes, and he asked me this, and over her bright expressive face came a scowl of boyish intensity. Suppose I was an engineer, and I was working on a dam, or maybe a bridge, in the Rockies, and say it was pretty far down south, say around the Grand Canyon. I should think they'd need a dam down there, or anyhow a bridge, said George, and he eyed me in a cautious way, which said as plain as the nose on your face, Good Lord, she's only a woman, and she won't understand. But I showed him I was serious, and he asked me huskily, Suppose it was winter, Aunt Deborah, and the giants were in Texas. Do you think I could get a few days off? And then, before he could tell me the giants were a baseball nine, I said I was sure he could manage it. You should have seen his face light up. And he added very fervently, Gee, it must be wonderful to be an engineer out there. Roger chuckled delightedly, and Deborah went on with her work. How good she is with young'uns, he thought. 
What a knack she has of drawing him out. What a pity she hasn't some of her own. He slept until late the next morning and awoke to find Deborah by his bed. It's another boy, she told him. Roger sat up excitedly. Bruce has just telephoned the news. The children and I have breakfasted, and they're going out with their nurse. Suppose you and I go up and see Bruce and settle this trip to the mountains. About an hour later, arriving at Edith's apartment, they found Bruce downstairs with Alan Baird, who was just taking his departure. Bruce's dark eyes shone with relief, but his hand was hot and nervous. Alan, on the contrary, held out to Edith's father a hand as steady and relaxed as was the bantering tone of his voice. Bruce, he said, has for once in his life decided to do something sensible. He's going to drop his wretched job and take a week off with his children. And worry every minute he's gone, Deborah retorted, and come back and work day and night to catch up. But he isn't going to do it. I've decided to take the children myself. You have? cried Bruce delightedly. You'll do no such thing, said Alan, indignant. Oh, you go to thunder, Bruce put it. Haven't you any delicacy? Can't you see this is no business of yours? It isn't, eh? Alan sternly rejoined. And of Deborah he demanded, Didn't you say you'd go with me to Pinafore this Saturday night? Ah, sneered Bruce, so that's your game, and for one little night of your pleasure you'd do me out of a week of my life. Like that, said Baird, with a snap of his fingers. I'm going, though, said Deborah. Quite right, little woman, Bruce admonished her earnestly. Don't let him rob you of your happiness. Come here, growled Baird to Deborah. She followed him into the living room, and Roger went upstairs with Bruce. If he ever hopes to marry that girl, said Bruce, with an anxious backward glance, he's got to learn to treat her with a little consideration. Quit your quarreling, Roger said. What's a week in the mountains to you? Hasn't your wife just risked her life? Sure she has, said Bruce feelingly, and I propose to stick by her, too. Can I see her? No, you can't. Another of Baird's fool notions. Then where's the baby? Right in here. Silently, in front of the cradle, Bruce and Roger stood looking down, with the content which comes to men on such occasions when there is no woman by their side expecting them to say things. I made it a rule in my family, Roger spoke up presently, to have my first look at each child alone. Same here, said Bruce, and they continued their silent communion. A few moments later, as they were leaving, Deborah came into the room and went softly to the cradle. Downstairs they found that Alan had gone, and when Deborah rejoined them, she said she was going to stick to her plan. It was soon arranged that she and the youngsters should start on their journey the following day. Back at home she threw herself into the packing and was busy till late that night. At daybreak she was up again, for they were to make an early start. Bruce came with his new automobile. The children were all bundled in, together with Deborah and their nurse, and a half hour later, at the train, Bruce and Roger left them. Deborah flushed and happy, surrounded by luggage, wraps, small boys, an ice-box, toys, and picture books. The small red hat upon her head had already been jerked in a scrimmage, far down over one of her ears. Don't worry about us, Bruce, she said. We're going to have the time of our lives. Bruce fairly beamed his gratitude. 
if she don't marry he declared as he watched the train move slowly out there'll be a great mother wasted end of section two recording by james carson